0: Holy is the Lord. Holy is the Lord. And the Lord I will obey. Lord, help me. I don't know the way. Let's pray. Lord, you are holy. And we are yours. We're grateful that you have made a way for us to be yours in your holiness and in our sinfulness. You've made a way, and we're grateful. Lord, so often we don't know the way, but you do. And so, as we continue this journey with Abraham this morning, would you help us along with him find the way? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in the book of Genesis, and we've been studying the life of Abraham, and I, as I have heard many of you also say, have been so, so deeply helped and encouraged by this journey through the book of Genesis Uh, this life of Abraham has been powerfully encouraging his ups and downs highs and lows faithfulness and faithlessness on the way to being the man God has created him to be has been very encouraging to me if nothing else taking comfort from the fact that becoming the men and women God calls us to be is a process that often involves a very circuitous route to get where God wants to go. God knows the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. He just chooses not to take that route most of the time in our lives. And so I'm grateful that in my lows, in my faithlessness, I can find a friend in Abraham and most of all a friend in the God who is patient with us as we grow and at work in all of that. What a journey Abraham has been on. We'll be in chapter 22 this morning, but what a journey he's been on. It began in chapter 12 when God said to this pagan nomad, Abraham, leave your homeland. I'm not telling you where you're going, but leave. And we get this amazing faithfulness and resolve right at the beginning. He says, Abraham, go, and it says he went. He trusted God with all sorts of uncertainty leaving behind all that was familiar and secure and he went and then we've seen an up and down journey as he's shown great faithfulness trusting God to give him the promised land and saying to lot go you take whatever you want God's going to take care of me and great faithlessness twice even with the same kind of sin making his wife terribly vulnerable to people by lying I mean he, he goes back and forth up and down but He's been growing all along the way. And God has been reiterating his promises, saying, "I, I will make you a great nation. You will have a child and you will become a great nation. And your descendants will be more countless than the stars. And I'll be with you and I'll provide for you from you. And not only will I bless you, I will make you a great blessing to the nations. I will make you and through your son the means of saving the world. That's what he promises, and it's been up and down. And then, right before our passage in Genesis 22, Abraham, once again, honors God with this beautiful act here in verse 33 of Genesis 22. Look at how he describes God. It really sets the stage for everything else that happens here in chapter 22. Uh, Verse 1 of 22 says, After these things, when you read an intro like that, ponder what that means well i think you could say that's talking about his whole journey with god starting in chapter 12 but most certainly the preceding story and where abraham has now arrived in his understanding of who god is look at what it says in verse 33 of 21 abraham planted a tamarisk tree in beersheba and he called there on the name of the lord and this is what he calls Yahweh, the Lord, the everlasting God. El Olam. He, he says, you are El Olam. You're a God who has always been. A God who always will be. You're not even subject to time. You're a God who therefore can be trusted. You're El Olam, the everlasting God. This is where he is now. After many trials and challenges and ups and downs in his journey of faith, he now arrives at this beautiful recognition of God as El Olam, Olam, the everlasting God. And the God who can be trusted. And then this awesome challenge comes before him. Let's read the story together. That many would say is as good as ancient literature gets even people who don't believe the bible's the word of god recognize that this is a story filled with intrigue and mystery and and, an infuriating perplexity and a amazing graciousness and, and an understanding of who god is and who we are before him but listen to this very famous story of abraham being willing to offer his son after these things, 22.1 in Genesis, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together, And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they rose and they went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Wow. Well, where do we go from here? Well, this is just a stunning story. It follows on the heels of the fulfillment of God's great promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child. And even though this promise lingered in its fulfillment well into their old age, well past the age of childbearing, they trusted God and he came through. He provided this child Isaac, this one whose name means laughter. He laughs, is what his name means. What a great name. What a great name. Hey, do you know my, my son Isaac is here? Stand up and wave, Isaac. Yay. Hey, there's Isaac. Isaac. Isaac knows how he got his, his name. Before we went to China to get Isaac a few years ago, we were sitting around the dinner table and Donna said, Kids, what should we name little brother when he comes? And Sam, without even pausing, said, Isaac. Almost as if you say, Duh. Isaac. And Donna said, why Isaac? And he said, because it means laughter. Isn't it obvious he was saying? It was just amazing how convinced he was. And we said, well, we think that's a really good name. And so we named him Isaac, not knowing. That he would laugh maybe more than anybody I know and make people laugh maybe more than anybody I know. And his name couldn't be better for him. And Isaac's name couldn't have been better when Sarah and Isaac named him. Remember when the angel comes and Sarah's an old woman? No physical possible way she could have a child apart from an awesome miracle. And she laughs at the suggestion that she would nurse a child. Probably looking down. And she laughs, and the angel hears her and says, "Why do you laugh, Sarah?" And remember what she says: "I didn't laugh." <laughs> and the angel said, "No, you laughed, and you'll name your son after laughter. He'll he'll be named laughter." Well, see that laughter was really different than the laughter in Jackson's passage he preached last week. So helpfully, uh, listen to how Sarah laughs now. In Genesis 21, verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. He laughs. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old and God had commanded him. Abraham was a 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me, not laugh at me, but over me, rejoicing with me in the fulfillment of God's promise in my life, that at one time I laughed at the very thought, now I laugh in the fulfillment of it. It's just beautiful. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the laughter now fills their hearts and fills their mouths because God has come through. He's provided. But, like so often in our lives, very quickly at times, laughter turns to tears. You can be laughing and, and then get a punch in the gut with new circumstances that arise. That's how life is, isn't it? Laughter can fill our hearts and then anguish and, and gut-wrenching sorrow can follow the next day, sometimes the next minute. And that's what we have in this story. There, there's this wonderful fulfillment and now Abraham enters this tremendous dilemma and there there are three things in Abraham's life his journey I want us to realize in this story we have Abraham's dilemma Abraham's devotion and Abraham's delight And first is this dilemma. It doesn't get more perplexing than this. The dilemma of Abraham here is this uh, this conflicting reality between God's promise that he would have a child who he sure enough had who then would become the means of countless offspring and the salvation of the world ultimately through the seed of the Messiah. And now this command conflicts with the promise. How can a promise be fulfilled when he's now told to sacrifice his son, to kill his son, to offer him on an altar? This crazy thing that actually had precedent in Abraham's experience. He was from a pagan background. Pagan religions offer their children as offerings, as his ultimate display. And the law hadn't been written yet, but this this community of faith of which he is the beginning here, in the law... There's even this idea, not of child sacrifice. God never tells anyone to sacrifice their child. That never actually happens because of a command of God, including in this passage. We don't need to somehow justify child sacrifice. It never happens. God knew it wouldn't happen. He never commanded it. But this idea, nonetheless, of the firstborn, in this context, in this culture, the firstborn son had on his shoulders the ongoing existence and security of the whole family. You didn't divide the inheritance among all of them. You gave it to the firstborn to steward it well and provide for others. And you, you, you bet the ranch on this kid. In this context, everything depended on this firstborn son. Providing and taking the inheritance and and multiplying it and doing better with it. So not only physically but spiritually this child Isaac was the fulfillment not just of Abraham's little family unit but countless blessings that would come out of his family unit. And now after the fulfillment God's being told now kill him. Put him on an altar and sacrifice him. And as we saw in the story, it, it's not this, this faithlessness that we've seen in Abraham before. It's not even this, this debating he did with God before God judges Sodom and Gomorrah. How about it? How, how could you bring judgment? What if there are 10 righteous? What if there are righteous? And he, he doesn't do that. In this story, three commands come. Did you see what they are? He says, Go, go where I tell you. I'm not gonna give you all the details, but go where I tell you and take your son and offer him. Go take an offer. Those three words, those verbs are gut-wrenching. And, and it's almost like if God is, is taking a knife and, and not just sacrificing Isaac, but but Abraham. He takes this knife, and all these words are a dagger. Take your son, right? My son? your only one, he drives it in again. Isaac, and if that's not enough, you know the one you love, he drives it in again. This is unthinkable. How in the world can you reconcile the promises of God here with the commands of God to sacrifice the fulfillment in this way? Oh, it's gut-wrenching. And realize that as difficult circumstantially as this test may be, there's a fundamental reality going on. How could God be who he says he is to promise this and then command something that completely contradicts the promise? God's not making sense here. How could this be? And life doesn't make sense to us a lot So often in life, we don't know what in the world God's up to. And I think it's good to try to figure out what he's up to. But not that we demand we know what he's up to. Life is filled with so much suffering. It's filled with so much challenge and darkness that it's so easy for us to wonder, Lord, what are you doing? How in the world could anything good come of this? I know you say that you cause all things to work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose, but how could this be? And he comes back and he says, oh, all the suffering in this world is just a slight momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. I don't see how, Lord. I know you don't, but trust me, he's saying. He says, all the suffering... You weigh it against the glory to come and it's not even close. The glory to come is so magnificent that all the suffering will so pale in comparison you can't believe you ever wondered if it would all add up to something good. He says, trust me, not because you can connect all the dots but because you know who I am. That's the challenge here. Do you know who God is? Not because he's making sense to you right now. Because you look around at the world and you see kids gunned down in a school and and you want to quit. You want to assume nothing good is ever going to win. That God certainly isn't winning now and he'll never will win. You look at your own life. When the test results come back from the doctor and they're positive, not negative. It's malignant, not benign. You, You come back and you see this reality. Then what? How could this be good? How could he be working at all? He is and he promises us that and that's what Abraham gets at this point. He doesn't know. He's climbing this mountain out of this dilemma and what I want you to realize is it wouldn't be right for us to focus on circumstantial problems as the primary problem. The evil in this world, the evil that affects our lives. A much deeper problem in this passage is the deeper problem for all of us. Then how could God bring good from bad circumstances? The much deeper and much more important problem I want you to hear very clearly is how can God be both holy and gracious? How could see because sacrifice is not this foreign concept to God. Sacrifice is actually a very right thing. The, the Bible in the in the law says that the firstborn will be forfeit, the firstborn will be devoted. The firstborn will be belong to the Lord entirely, whether it's the first fruits, whether it's the first best lamb, whether it's the firstborn son. You remember even the Exodus? When the plagues came on Egypt, remember the last one that finally broke Pharaoh's back? It was what? The firstborn sons of Egypt or Israel, both of them, needed that blood on the doorpost, that blood of the lamb, or else the angel of death would take the firstborn. God wants to make sure we know that our greatest treasures should never outweigh our treasure that we put on Him. Even the greatest blessings from God are, yes, blessings and treasures, but they are something He gives us to point us to Him. He's our greatest treasure. And this is a test for Abraham here. He's saying, How can sacrifice and atonement happen and God still fulfill His promises and be gracious? How can he be both gracious and faithful and holy? How can we both have the demand of his holiness and the fulfillment of his gracious promise? How can this work? This is the bigger dilemma. And God's testing Abraham. He's testing his trust that God is the everlasting God. God is the one who is to be trusted. It's a test. We don't like tests. Every time I say to my students at Biola, oh, we got a test next Tuesday, you should see their faces. It's like, oh. <laughs> Although a student came to me last week and Brindley said, Dr. Tannis, taking that exam on the character of God was worshipful. It was edifying. And I said, that's what it should be, right? Because tests are good things. Tests, ideally, help us realize where we are. And not only assess where we are, taking a test should deepen what you know, Right? Deepen what you understand. It's not just find out where you are. It's that. But it's more than that. It takes you deeper. Tests can be a good thing. When I go to the doctor, I may not like getting tests, but I'm glad I get to have tests. And I'm glad as I sit in her office and look at all the diplomas on her wall that they are evidence that she has taken a lot of tests and passed them, right? Or all those diplomas wouldn't be there. Lots of them. Tim, thanks for taking all those tests. Yes, right? Tests should be a good thing. And not only to show you where you are, but as you prepare for the test, as you go through the test, you're solidifying the things you now know. And that's what God's doing for Abraham. It's a good thing, whether it's a physical test, spiritual test, an intellectual test. Tests are good things. Don't avoid them. Reality is a good thing to know, right? This idea, don't tell me, don't tell me. What? No, we want to know where we are. And God knows where Abraham is. But he wants to take him through this test so Abraham knows where he is. And so Abraham goes even deeper in where he is. And i taught my kids all to ride bikes. And you know what I always do? I run behind, holding the bike. And then without them knowing, I let it go. And they're actually riding the bike and they don't know it, but I know it. And then when it comes time to say, and now you're going to ride by yourself. No, no, I can't do that. Yes, you can. How do you know? (laughs) Right? But that, that awareness, I can do this. I am at that place. Abraham needs to know this. God knows it. But God wants Abraham to know it. And for us to know Abraham's faith so we have an example in him. A way to increase our faith is a test and to exercise it. You know, you're here this morning, you came to church because you believe your faith is going to grow. Getting up this morning and coming here was an act of faith. I, I'm going to devote this time on a Sunday morning when I could just sit and watch the Olympic reruns and I. I'm going to come here. I'm going to trust that I'll grow here. And as you express your faith in singing and in ingesting the word now, your faith is growing. And that's what's happen- happening. It's a test. And so how does he meet this test? How does he meet, deal with this dilemma? With amazing devotion. So the dilemma is met with devotion. After many peaks and valleys in his faith, there's an amazing resolve. Like at the beginning, it's, he says, go, take, offer, And it says, and he got up early in the morning. Man, if there was ever a day you'd think you'd roll over and sleep in. Maybe he couldn't sleep at all. That would have been me. Maybe he got up early because there was no use staying in bed. That's many mornings for me. And he got up, and he he began the journey, a three-day journey. Imagine how arduous this was, not just physically, but spiritually. Emotionally, three days to look his son in the face, knowing what was awaiting at that mountain. No doubt wrestling and struggling and questioning. Sam, would you come up here? This is my son, Sam. We tend to think of Isaac as a, really, uh, a little boy. He, I think he was more like Sam, at least 12, like Sam is. Oh, I love this boy. Yeah. Yes, I love this boy. Sam is unusually strong for a 12 year old, aren't you? Yes, so my dad, my dad used to play a game with me called Drag Daddy to Safety. And he would act like he had been knocked unconscious and we were in the wilderness. And my brother and I, as little kids, had it. my dad's about 240, he's a big dude. And, and my brother and I, I think he was just really lazy. I mean, what requires less creativity and energy than Drag Dad to Safety, right? I'm in the woods, you need to get me to safety. And it was hilarious to do that. So I started doing that with Sam when he was like, uh, eight nine eight eight nine ten uh, and he, at ten years old, he could get me to safety. Now, watch it, show him. Watch it. Watch it. Get me to safety. Yeah. yeah, he. That's good. That's good. He could just, he could just do it. I'm like two bills, and he has no problem as a twelve year old. So, he had to be able to carry the wood, right? He had to be able to carry the wood up a mountain. So it wasn't some little kid. And, and Abraham's an old man now. He probably couldn't have carried the wood, but his son could. And they're going up this mountain. I can't tell you how moving it's been to me. As I thought of, of Isaac probably being a lot actually like Sam and um, probably the same pigmentation and, um, and handsome and, <laughs> and strong enough to carry the wood and thinking, oh, my I'd actually be able to give my life, I think. But my son? I can't imagine anything harder than this. Really, I tell my kids, I love you to death. I would die for you. But for them to die, oh, I would have a really hard time with that. How could I ever do that? Thanks, bro. Um, how, How could I do that, right? How could I ever do this? So he's got three days to think about it. And you know what I think had to happen in Abraham? He loved his boy, right? He was the fulfillment of his dreams for decades. And he's going up this mountain. He's on this three-day journey. And he's no doubt wrestling. Now, he's got resolve. That's just amazing. He goes. We don't get any sense that he's wavering here, but he's human. How does he not wrestle and struggle and even weep as he looks at his son sleeping around the campfire, knowing what awaits? You know what he had to be doing? Reminding himself of who God was the whole time. Climbing up that mountain with his son next to him. Especially when his son says, well, we've got the wood and the fire. Where's the lamb, And he doesn't know. He doesn't know how, but he knows God. And he says, he'll provide. He said, I don't know. I don't know where the lamb is. I don't know what the provision is or how it'll look or when it'll come. But I know God and I know it'll come. So every step of the way, he's probably reminding himself all the promises. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. I'm going to change your name from Abram, father to father of a multitude, so you believe this. I'm going to make your descendants more than the sand on the seashore. I'm going to name your wife princess because she'll be part of royalty. I'm I'm going to name you and your wife this name that will guarantee my promise. I'm going to make an offering, a sacrifice, remember? And I'm going to take the atonement on myself for the sacrifice. I'm going to do it. And every step of the way, maybe every step of the way, he's just saying that name for God everest, uh, everlasting, El Olam. And then he looks at his son, and he can't believe what he has to do, and he says, El Olam, God is everla- He's the everlasting God, I can trust him. And that's how we go through life very often, one step at a time, reaffirming a promise of God and taking one more step. Because that's all we can get out of that promise. And then we affirm who he is one more time and we take one more step. That's how life so often is. That's why the New Testament says things like, press on, fight the good fight of faith, persevere, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. God is trustworthy so you can trust him and step out in faith. And every time you do, you strengthen in your faith. You validate it, you display it, you give it to others to see. And we all have Isaacs, don't we? We all do. We all have things in our lives, often great gifts from God that are close to taking over our allegiance and devotion toward God because they're just such good gifts. I remember about two years after we got married, that would make it 91. I think it was about 91. I can remember just Walking, I I was thinking about my wife and how much I loved her, and how what a gift from God Donna is to me. And I can remember imagining that she died. And I realized in thinking about this that my fist had literally clenched at the thought of God taking her from me. And I said, I've got a problem. And I needed to repent and I needed to put my wife on the altar and say as great as she is, she's just a means God uses. He's the great one. He's the one I trust. Because as we all know, life in this world is frail. And we need to trust the one who holds life in his hands. He's the one. And we all have our Isaacs, don't we? Is it your children? Is it your education? Is it your success in your career? Is it your image? Is it your rights? Is it earthly pleasures that you're giving yourself to rather than God? Where are you finding your security more than God? Where are you finding your significance more than God? Escape routes that give temporary sense of control that don't? God wants us to take a knife... (laughs) and and just slaughter idols, not not literally, but spiritually, emotionally, in our minds by recounting who God is and bring that knife down on those things. Because anything that competes with God for ultimate devotion will never satisfy. What are you giving your life to? What are you really trusting? Every time you disobey God, there's a clue that you're trusting in that rather than him. Every time inordinate devotion or affection goes to something besides God, you're getting a clue to the idols that need to be put on the altar. And we with Abraham can grow and learn and our devotion can grow. And the calling on Abraham's life is no different than the calling on all of our lives. Jesus makes it as clear as he can. Jesus says, unless you hate your mother and father, And brothers and sisters, unless you hate your family compared with the way you love me, you don't know me. You you can't have a relationship with me. Unless the difference is that radical, that it's as hatred compared with your love for me, you, you can't know me. I've created you to love me as God, not just one of the ways you're cared for. This sort of absolute devotion is what Abraham displays here. And he does it. He binds Isaac, and apparently Isaac goes along with it. Look, I'm, I'm, I can still take Sam. But Abraham was over 100. I wouldn't stand a chance against that boy if I was over 100. It's getting close now. Isaac went along with it. There's no way Abraham would have gotten him on that altar. And bound him, you know. Jewish rabbis called this story the the Akidah, the the binding story. This awesome scene where this father is binding his son like a, a, a sacrifice and putting him on the altar, and he takes the knife in the air and he's willing to do it, and God says, Stop. Did Abraham ever hear more sweet words than Abraham? Abraham, no, don't do it. I'll provide. Just like he said he would. And the beautiful thing is the New Testament actually gives us an understanding of what's going on in Abraham's mind. When he says to the young men, we'll be back, and says to Isaac, God will provide. Listen to what Hebrews 11 says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, listen, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. God gave him Isaac's life back with this substitute offering. This is the great truth of this. And he raises the knife, confident not of the details, how God would do it or when God would do it, but that God would keep his promises, that God was always good, that his Elo the all everlasting God, And he raises the knife. And we all have these things. Jesus says to the rich young ruler, this one thing you lack, sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. He knew that he was clinging to this as the source of his security. And instead of God being his life, his riches were his life. What is your life? It's gotta be God himself. He is our life. He is our light. He is life our greatest joy. And this leads to Abraham's delight. God does provide a substitute. He stops him. He provides a substitute and the ram takes the place of Isaac. And indeed, God provides as only God can and only God needed to. And so his faith was expressed, and James talks about his faith being put into work like ours does too. We trust in God, and so we trust him every day. And please realize that the real sacrifice in this story is not Isaac, that he wasn't sacrificed. What was actually sacrificed? Abraham. Abraham's will. Abraham's devotion to anything but God. That's what was put on the altar and, and, and killed His self-will, his self-protectiveness, his fending for himself like he had done in the past, he puts that on the altar. And his delight is in God and the laughter returns. Imagine how they laugh now. Imagine how Sarah laughs when he comes back and recounts the way God provides the ram, his gracious provision just like he always does. God is our delight. And yes, Abraham is a hero here, but God's the real hero. Because he's the one Abraham trusts in. He graciously fulfills his righteous demand. The song that Jeffrey beautifully sang for us, listen to the words, holy is the Lord, holy is the Lord. See, it's because of who he is that we trust him. Because we conjure up some thing called faith that's a feeling, but we trust in God. And I, the Lord I will obey. When I trust him, I do what he says. Lord, help me, I don't know the way. How often is that true? I waited on the Lord. So take me to the mountain. I will follow where you lead. There I'll lay the body of the boy you gave to me. And even though you take him, still ever I will obey. But maker of this mountain, please make another way. He did for Abraham and he does for the human race. When rather than feel the wages of our sin which is death and the judgment of God he makes another way and this ram and this Isaac and this Abraham become an example to us of the ultimate lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world Jesus the son of God who became one of us God loved the world so much he gave his only son so we trust in him and as it says in Romans 8.32 how how Will he who gave us his own son, not also with him, graciously give us all things? If he loved us that much, we can trust him. You know, God says to Abraham, now, I know, I know, I know where your heart is. I know you trust me. But when we look at Jesus in our place on a cross, do you know what we say? Now we know. Now we know how much you love us. Now we know how you could possibly reconcile your holiness and your grace, your promise and your demand. They perfectly come together on the cross. All he promises, all he demands is perfectly satisfied and fulfilled on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate now at this Lord's Supper, that Jesus did it for us. That's The one we trust, that's how he's ultimately provided a way. God will provide, and the way he provided, far more than even that ram in the thicket is in his son on a cross. And that's what the Lord's Supper is about. It's the son of God on a cross, taking our place, taking our sin, dying in our place so that we could live. That's what this cross is. That's what this table is, the body and blood of Christ emblems, emblemamized, imaged on this table. He, He gives us these images, these emblems of who he is for us. And when we take the bread and take the cup, we say, now I see who you are. Now I know your heart. I don't depend on figuring out how you're working in all the difficult circumstances. I look at a cross and I say, I know who you are. You want to know what love is? The Bible says, look on a cross and see a man hanging there. The only only son of God whom he loves. Abraham didn't have to sacrifice Isaac because our heavenly father gave his son on an altar shaped like a cross. This is for believers. If you've never trusted Jesus, this is the morning. Turn from your sin. And trust him and take the Lord's Supper with us. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We need help. We are a people who so easily get knocked off course and give ourselves, our very selves, to empty things, even good things, that are gifts from you, but aren't you. So would you help us take the knife and put those things on the altar and slay them before you, knowing that you're the God who provides everything we need most of all, the Savior we needed in Jesus. And we pray these things in His name. Amen.